Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Madeline. Well, hello, everybody. Good morning. I hope you're having a a good start to the holiday weekend, and and uh, for many of us, a start to the summer with graduations and trips, and uh, hopefully it's a slower pace of things uh, for you. Uh, it is my privilege, by the way, my name is Scott. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here, along with uh, David Filson and, and several others. And uh, uh, this is going to be, this morning, the second message in our summer series that we're calling The Battle within uh, finding strength in weakness. And so today I'm going to talk about discouragement. Discouragement. Uh, If you're ever discouraged about your life, maybe hopes go unrealized or uh, anti-climax happens, uh, opposition experienced or physical or emotional pain, a character flaw that, that stays with you, difficult relationships, the experience of, uh, of heartache and, and heartbreak, this is the Scripture for you. Because what Paul the Apostle is doing is he's, he's giving us a window into his own wrestling with what he calls a thorn in the flesh, which represents his discouragement. We're not 100% certain what this thorn is, it, it, because it could actually be a number of different things. It could be the criticism that he's receiving, uh, which is part of the backdrop of, of, of his letters to the Corinthians, that, that there's criticism that, that Paul keeps getting from people inside the Corinthian church who are masquerading as ministers. And Paul sort of sarcastically refers to them as the super apostles. And, and the way that you know that they're false is that they're treating Paul more as competition than as an ally and a partner in ministry. In other words, they're trying to get followers for themselves, and they're not so much concerned as Paul is with, with accumulating more and more followers of Jesus. So he gets, he's getting criticized. That could be his thorn. Uh, the bullying that he's experiencing, that could be his thorn as well. If you look in chapter 4, you see that Paul talks about beatings, about being struck down, about being persecuted. He's being routinely bullied by other people. He could be talking about a physical disability. We, we, we get a window into this uh, in Galatians chapter 4 where he talks about a physical impairment that he has, probably uh, a diminishing vision. His, his, his eyesight is compromised. Or he could be talking about the besetting sin that he shares with us very candidly in Romans chapter 7 about how he struggles with the internal sin of covetousness, of a lack of contentment. 
And so Paul is struggling in a number of ways. He's weary either of other people, of his own limitations, or he's weary of himself or all of the above. But what we do know is he's so discouraged that he begs God for relief from his discouragement. And God says no. And and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at something Johnny Erickson Tata said after spending several decades in in a wheelchair after a diving accident in her teenage years through the lens of Paul's experience. And what Johnny said was this, sometimes God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And this is how Paul could write, with all sincerity, a messenger was sent to me from Satan, from the devil of hell, in the form of this thorn in the flesh, whatever that might be, in the form of his discouragement. His discouragement came from Satan, and yet God uses it to shape his character and to make him more of a a life-giving Christ-like man. Because sometimes God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. So the three responses that that, that Paul shows us here to discouragement when we've got Christ either in our peripheral or, or ideally in our direct vision. Lament, surrender, and boasting. Lament, surrender, and boasting. So we'll start with lament. Not in spite of Paul's Christianity, but because of his Christianity, Paul registers a complaint about his affliction, about his discouragement. He says in verses 7 and 8, a thorn was given me in the flesh, and three times I pleaded with the Lord to to take it away from me. So, if you look at the original Greek language here, this term for pleading with the Lord has the sense of of urging or of, of begging or of desperately crying out from the gut Lamenting, in other words, is characteristic of the normal Christian experience. So, something like a year ago, I I was part of a conversation that took place at the Tennessee residence uh, around the subject of race, and and particularly the social problems that that have been occurring and been all over the news, um, you know, resulting from Ferguson and, and Charleston shootings and, and you know, the, the New York City tragedy, uh, you know, a lot about racial tension in the air uh, these days. And so, there was a conversation that included, um, uh, that included uh, basically a room full of, of Caucasian men and women and African-American men and women, and, and there was no intention at all to exclude uh, other people of color from, from Asian or Latino or Native uh, descent, uh, for, for example. Um, but because so much of the story has been black and white, uh, there were a bunch of people that were convened for this conversation in particular that, that were either black or white. And, and there was a, an observation that was made in the, in the middle of that conversation about a key component that seems to be pervasively missing from Western evangelical and mostly white Christianity, and that is lament. Lament is an assumed norm 
for people of color who follow Jesus Christ. But it is strikingly absent, the observation was, in white evangelical Christianity. Give you an example. A few years ago, I, I attended a, a worship service in a prison, and the worship service was conducted mainly by Caucasian suburban people who were not prisoners. And the, the incarcerated people in the room were 90% or so people of color. And I'll, I'll never forget the lyric of one of the songs that was brought in from the white suburbs to that context. And the lyric went like this, in Jesus' presence, our problems disappear. That is one of the worst possible lyrics that you could put in a song that claims to be Christian. That in the presence of Jesus, our problems disappear. When Jesus himself said, in the world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Because you're my follower, you're probably going to have more trouble, not less. And so to say that in his presence, our problems disappear. What does that say to Mary as she's sitting at the foot of the cross of her own son as he bleeds out in his presence? Our problems don't disappear. They, they actually escalate and sometimes become more real and pronounced. Last time somebody asked you, how are you doing? What did you say? You said, fine. And maybe you are fine, or you might be dying inside, but you still said fine because that's just what you say, because we don't want to make it awkward by talking about how we're really doing on the inside. You know, one thing that, that breaks my heart sometimes as a minister, I, I go to a, a large number of funerals largely because of what I do, it becomes very clear at, at a lot of funerals that we, that we live in a culture where even those who are grieving the most and shedding the most tears feel an implicit unspoken pressure not to make it awkward for anybody else. And, and, and if they start shedding tears or if they start showing their grief, they feel sometimes compelled to apologize because of what our culture says. Never let him see you sweat. Never let him see you struggle because in his presence, our problems disappear. Somehow there's something wrong with my spirituality if I don't complain about how much I'm hurting when the fact of the matter is there's something wrong with my spirituality if I don't complain when I'm hurting and struggling. You know, Steinbeck wrote this short story called Flight, and it's set in Santa Lucia, which is roughly 85% African in its population. And I'll just let the line speak for itself. Mama let out a death wail, Steinbeck writes, a death wail. It rose to a high piercing whine and subsided into a moan. Mama raised it three times, and then she turned and went into the house. Or C.S. Lewis, in a grief observed, lamenting, openly lamenting the death of his wife from a violent form of terminal cancer. Lewis says, go to God when your need is desperate and when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. 
and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You know, some have actually looked at, at Lewis's candor and expression of his feelings as his wife dies as, as irreverence, when in fact, it, it, you, can't, you almost can't do anything more reverent than lament and complain when you're dying on the inside. And yet Lewis has been criticized for this. What lament does is it gives a voice to a disoriented soul that recognizes that God made the world for shalom, comprehensive peace and flourishing and thriving. That is what God made the world for, and and that world has been vandalized by death, mourning, crying, and pain. And so a lack of composure in your grief is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. A lack of composure demonstrates that you are mature spiritually when you're dying inside. John chapter 11, Jesus Christ, the perfect human at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been dead four days, what does he do? He weeps and wails and gets angry. Or the Psalms, which are given to us as the inspired prayer book for the people of God, most of which were written by the man after God's own heart himself, David. Here's just a few samples of what the Psalms teach us in terms of how we are to pray when we're dying inside, when we're experiencing deep discouragement as Paul is here. The Psalms are saturated with lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I pour out my complaint before God, the psalmist says. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Attend to my cry, God. Bring me out of prison. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever prayed this way? Maybe it's time to start if you haven't. I'm sure that, you know, I'm no expert in psychology, but I have to wonder if the reason why the highest rates of anxiety and depression in the world are in the affluent Western Hemisphere. And I wonder if, if the absence of lament, uh, of a reluctance to, to, to open the release valve that God has given us, to let the air out uh, of, of our grief and our discouragement, rather than bottling it in, might be at least a contributing factor. Because cultures where wailing and, and, and loud laments are not only permitted but, but, but expected, those who study different societies will tell you that the rate of, 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 of anxiety and depression for circumstantial reasons, which is different than clinical, but, but anxiety and depression for circumstantial reasons is almost zero. Because the community is more significant than the individual in those cultures, and lament instead of stuffing it down is the expected norm when you're dying inside. So lament is something that Paul shows us. He also shows us surrender. There are basically three directions 
that we can go with our discouragement. One is to stuff our feelings, which just talked about at length. Uh, the second is, is to become very cynical, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And the third is surrender, submitting to whatever it is that God has decided in terms of how our stories should be written for the chapter that we're in. So Paul takes the third path, the path of surrender. You'll notice it says that he, he prays, he begs three times to God that God would remove the source of his discouragement. But there's a reason why he doesn't pray a fourth time. It's because he came to a point of recognizing that God was up to something and, and, and so that it was time to take no for an answer. You know, he came to a point where he recognized after, after gutting it out in prayer with God, after gutting it out with his lament, that in this particular instance at least, God's best yes to him came to him in the form of a no. See, Paul had been formed and shaped o o over the years and o over many dangers, toils, and snares. Paul had been shaped by the truth, the deeply held truth in him that God knows Paul better than Paul knows Paul, and that God loves Paul more than Paul loves Paul. So if we go back earlier in the chapter uh, to the first six verses, Paul talks about ecstatic spiritual experiences, like what we might call mountaintop or, or campfire experiences, except campfire and then some. You know, he talks about these, what, what he says literally, surpassingly great revelations. And, and he refers to it earlier in the chapter as, as being, being taken to the third heaven. We don't know exactly what it is, but, but, but what we do know is, is it's Greek language for a, a, a deeply intimate encounter with God, the most intimate encounter with God that you can have on this side of things, a vision of God Himself. And so, Paul had had several circumstances over the years like this, his Damascus Road experience where, where he, he meets the risen Jesus Christ face to face and in person. He talks in 1 Corinthians about how he, he, he speaks in tongues, which is, which is an ability to, to speak other languages that you have not been trained in or taught in, and, and yet you can speak them fluently because of a, a, an event that happens where the Spirit of God comes upon you and, and, and you're speaking in other languages, the truth of God. And, and, and there's also a language of heaven that, that, that Paul talks about. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's had those ecstatic experiences. He's also been witness to healings, miraculous healings, and lives being transformed, and new churches being born in communities that, that, that were hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's, he's experienced all of this, and yet here he is saying, in effect, that the apex of his spiritual experience is something that's happening not in the world of the extraordinary, but in the world of the ordinary. Not in the world of the spectacular, experiential, but in the world of the mundane and daily gutsy stuff of life, i.e. a thorn, criticism, bullying, disability, besetting sin, 
Or as he says here, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. Because he says, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Why does God allow this messenger of Satan to torment Paul? He says it in verse 7, and Paul gives the reason why. God did this to keep me from becoming conceited because of these ecstatic spiritual experiences that I was having. Because of these revelations and to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, a thorn was given to me in my flesh. This word given, it's the same word used throughout the rest of the New Testament for grace. Charis, charity. He's saying it was God's charity to me to allow this source of my discouragement to remain. Why is it charitable of God to allow sources of discouragement to remain? I think what Paul is saying here is that it's because in everything, even religion, success increases vulnerability to character deficit or to character collapse. Success increases vulnerability to becoming full of yourself instead of being full of God. And so Paul recognizes that his high-plane, ecstatic, otherworldly experiences with God actually made him vulnerable. And so he says, I'm not hanging my hat on that. What I'm hanging my hat on is the fact that I am weak and Jesus is strong. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Problem of Pain. He said that pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world because we're deaf to something. We're, We're deaf to what you could call the silent killer of the inflated ego. The inflated ego kills the, eventually destroys the egomaniac after leaving a trail of blood behind the egomaniac. This is all throughout Scripture. We see it all throughout history. You know, kingdoms rise and fall on the back of egomaniacs, like, like Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. It is no more. Like, 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 like like Caesar's Rome, it is no more. You know, Roman generals and emperors, the wise ones, you know, whenever they rode into a new town or into a village, they would be greeted by adoring, cheering, worshiping crowds. And what the wise Roman emperors did was they put a servant right next to them in the chariot. And the servant, the servant had one job, and the job description was this. When we ride into a town filled with adoring, worshiping crowds, you, my servant, shall whisper repeatedly in my ear, remember you too are mortal. Because most of the Roman emperors even believed that the greatest danger to their leadership, the greatest danger to their stature was hubris or arrogant pride. 
believing themselves to be above correction, to be above accountability, and being completely unwilling to listen to their servants. The wise Romans didn't just put superiors. They didn't have superiors. They didn't put peers. They didn't really have peers. They put their servants next to them to whisper in their ear, you're just like me. Paul's thorn, Paul is saying, functioned as the servant sitting at his side, reminding him that he, an apostle of the Most High God, a messenger and ambassador of the king, is also mortal. The thorn is also a reminder of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God in which the strongest souls are, are, are almost always the ones who have suffered the most. So, so the grief expert Elizabeth Kubler-Ross reflects this in, in, in an excerpt from one of her writings. She said that the most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, and known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. This is true of adults. You, when you are in grief, when you are grieving, who do you want to find as swiftly as you can? You want to find somebody who's empathetic and somebody who's compassionate. And, 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 and almost every time, I dare, say, I dare say every time, the compassionate person or the empathetic person that you find is somebody who has suffered themselves. That's why the recovery movement assigns to people who are addicted a sponsor. And all a sponsor is is somebody who shares the same struggle, but who's just a little bit ahead in the process. It's like what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We comfort others with the comfort that we in our own affliction have received from Christ and also from one another as a community. And for those who are discouraged that their kids are not the popular kids, that their kids might even be the lonely kids or the excluded kids or even the kids who get bullied sometimes. If those parents are able to take the long view about their kids, recognize this, parents. It is almost 100% of the time true that the lonely, excluded, and sometimes bullied kids end up being the adults who have the kindest most gentle, empathetic, compassionate souls. It's the ones who are excluded in youth who become the most inclusive and welcoming and approachable people in adulthood. That's how God works. Because sometimes God permits what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Lastly, boasting. Paul says, I will boast, but he doesn't boast in himself. In fact, he's done the opposite of that. He basically writes off the experience that he'd had with God, sort of the, the, the mountaintop, you know, higher plane than anybody else's experience with God experience. He writes that off. He says that's really of no significance in this conversation. What's really of significance is what happens in the ordinary and the mundane. And, and, and he says, I will boast gladly, but it, but it will be about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. 
Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So the substance of Paul's boast is not his extraordinary experiences of intimacy with God. Paul is approaching that as if it would be inappropriate to boast to other people about your deep, emotional, top-of-the-mountain spiritual experiences. You know, one commentator said, that's almost like a husband after the wedding night calling his groomsmen and sharing all the details about the night before and the intimacy that happened. It would be entirely appropriate because by, by definition, intimacy is for the people who are intimate with each other and nobody else, and it's, it's an exclusive thing. And the fact that you have to go on and boast about your intimacy suggests that no intimacy was ever there in the first place. So, this, this, this same commentary went on to say that in every Christian there should be a holy shyness about one's self and a holy boldness about Jesus. Shy about you, bold about Jesus. Humble about you, boastful about Jesus. That's what's going on with Paul here. Introverted about yourself, extroverted about Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus has the true power that is strong enough to defeat Satan. This, this thorn, whatever it is, it comes to Paul, it says, as a messenger of Satan. But Paul didn't even think to ask Satan, dear Satan, would you please remove the thorn? Even though Satan's the one that put it there, he goes straight to God. He bypasses the enemy, renders the enemy irrelevant, and says, God, you see what he has done to me. Will you please take care of this. And God says, instead of getting rid of it, I'm, I'm going to take care of it a different way. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to redeem it in you for my sake and for my glory. See, God is the master of judo, you could say, because you know, judo is one of the martial arts where, where you, you take your opponent's strength and their momentum and you flip it on them. You use their own strength and their own momentum against them. I mean, people ask about the Job story, about Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Why would God do that? Why would God give any rope to Satan only so as to give Satan enough rope with which to hang himself? And that's what's happening here with Paul. You know, God's, God allows the messenger of Satan to Paul so Paul can become the messenger of Jesus. Jesus, who endured the greatest evil and the greatest discouragement. Jesus, who is pictured here for us at the table where we remember what? We remember his death at the table of charity, at the table of his chorus, of his grace. But how do we get here? Some things had to happen to enable us to get here. First of all, Jesus had to go through the Gethsemane experience where he is anticipating thorns in his flesh. Crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and feet, and a spear through his side. And in that experience of Gethsemane, as he's anticipating these things, he pleads with the Lord to remove the thorns. And the best yes that God gives is a no. And then from the cross, Jesus cries out a death 
wail, a cry of lament that he poaches from the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God. This is the only time he doesn't call him Abba. This is the only time he doesn't refer to God as Father. My God, O distant one, why have you forsaken me? And here's why. It was because of Judo. God took the enemy's violence even on the cross and used it to restore shalom, permitting what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, which is charity to you and to me. What could be better than that? What could be bigger than that? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this table of charity in front of us, which is a table for all who have been baptized into your church in the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and whose desire and intent is to renounce sin, to follow Jesus, and even to recognize the Father's hand reorchestrating and redeeming even the enemy's activity in our lives. Father, thank you that this table also affords us a time for community, a time to pass the peace with one another, a time to both lament and give thanksgiving, to mourn and to rejoice. Father, so let this be a time where you encourage us through the table and also through the conversation that we have with one another both before and after the time that we're at the table. But we are so thankful for you, Lord. We're thankful for you, Jesus, that you endured the thorns. We're so thankful, Father, that you permitted what you hate in order to accomplish what you love in the rescue of those that you love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.